My friends, as we uh, gather today around God's Word, I invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 5. James is a short book at the end of the New Testament, so you'll find your way through Hebrews and then James and then 1 and 2 Peter. Today is our last Sunday in James, the conclusion of the letter, and it's always worth paying attention um, to what was chosen to go last. For the, for the letter as James wrote this centuries ago. James chapter 5, we'll be reading verses 13 through 20. But before we read God's word together, let's pray for God's blessing upon the word. God, you are a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. It is to you that we come to for all manners of faith and life, to know the ways in which you have called us to live, to confess before you all that we know to be true about ourselves and about you. So, Lord, we pray that in this moment you send your Holy Spirit upon us, that the word may be illumined to our hearts, that we may understand something about our faith, something about ourselves, and a deeper growing of relationship with you. Lord, light the way for our lives, for our faith. In the name of Jesus Christ we pray, amen. James 5, beginning at verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a mere human being, even as we are. Yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. In reading that passage for the Sunday that it is, I want you to know that every single thing in there has happened in this place in the last year. We've had people in trouble who have come for prayer. We've had people rejoice and sing praise. We've anointed people who are sick with oil and prayed for them. And one thing that hits particularly close to home with that is that it's not the lack of faith for which some people still die. But the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. 
it is well with my soul, comes to mind as an understanding of what kind of well we're talking about here. And that we're told our sins will be forgiven and the Lord will raise them up. Sometimes healing happens on earth. And we are raised up from our beds just as Jesus raised people from the mats of being paralyzed. But what we also know is that that word, raise them up, is a resurrection word. Even those among us who die, they will live, for the Lord will raise them up. And now, for an annual letter, and I don't know if you cry easy or not, but I know I'll cry, and if that makes you cry, then we're just going to all cry together, and that's great. My dear North Holland, it is a privilege and an honor and a joy to serve as one of your pastors, and you are so good to me and my family, and we are grateful for it. I came to you as a pastoral intern in 2011 when I'd first started at Western Theological Seminary. It's hard to believe that that was seven years ago. Furthermore, it was four years ago in 2014 that I was installed as one of the pastors here. Four years. And so it is today that I write my fourth annual letter on the anniversary of my installation. That four years is particularly exciting to me as I consider a national statistic that has haunted seminary students for the last several years. Consistently and across denominations, half of the individuals who graduate from a seminary and enter into pastoral ministry will quit within five years. Half of pastors quit within five years. Nathan's nodding because he's threatened with that statistic every week, just like Pastor Audrey and I were. So today, I celebrate with you that if you keep me on board for one more year, we can beat the statistics together. <laughs> Woohoo! So whether you like me or not, one more year would be good. More would be better, I think. And if you really want to run me out of town in the next year before that five-year mark, you need some kind of come-to-Jesus moment, because that's just mean. But my reflection on four years here is not from a place of fear that we're going to have some huge falling out in the next 12 months. I doubt it. Rather, it is with sincere amazement that I consider all that God has done among us in the last four years. I cannot and would not dare to take credit for it, but today I can bear witness to what I have seen happen in the 1,460 days that I've occupied that office downstairs. We've seen change, change in physical structure, not unlike the Enterprise from Star Trek, that in 1852 there was original church building, and similarly, it burned just as they destroyed the first enterprise. Some of you have heard me make this analogy before. But what I'm amazed by is that North Holland and Star Trek have an eerily similar timeline. And I know already, Terry Packard, just quiet. 
I like Star Wars too, but we're talking about Trek today. And you can harass me about it later. The, the room that we're in was built in 1946 after the fire took the original ship, but the crew remained steadfast and rebuilt. That would be what I would call, if there is an Enterprise A, this was the North Holland A. North Holland B, of course. Ooh, that's why Dave's downstairs. That actually does look kind of cool. There was a North Holland B when the education wing was added on. And there was a North Holland C in 1989-1990 when this whole sanctuary got flipped around, the narthex was added, all of those changes. And then it was time for North Holland D, the fourth iteration of this building. That's physical changes, and we'll come back to that in a little bit. But in my own sense of humor, we'll see how this looks in a second, we've also had changes in staff. That's the original series crew right there. See, Packard, if you'd watch Star Trek, this would be a lot funnier to you. <laughs> and I'm going to leave it to you to determine how good of a fit it is to compare Pastor Josh Van Lewin to Captain James T. Kirk, or how good of a fit it is to com compare Pastor Dustin to Commander Spock. <laughs> Granted, I think that fit actually works really well. Welcome back. We're glad that you're with us, and we continue to pray for your work as you pursue your Ph.D. at Wheaton. Blessings to you and Brandon both. But take a look, my friends. I see Pastor Josh, Pastor Dustin. I would say Sharon Skur would be Lieutenant Uhura. I think Paul Wesselink would be Bones McCoy, because, you know, they kind of both got that kind of grouchy edge to him. I'm a worship director, not a miracle worker. Karen Campice, you might be Scotty. And somewhere on that ship, I was an intern, some sort of ensign. But now, we're in what I would call the next generation, which makes me Captain Jean-Luc Picard, which is awesome. And that makes Pastor Audrey Commander William T. Riker. And despite the gender bend, that actually is a really good fit because Riker is the enthusiasm and the passion of the Next Generation crew, the one who's always up for an adventure. Glad to have you on board for the two years that you have been with us now as well, and we're grateful for that. We've had the changes in staff, and I would say this one, if we match hair color, uh, Rachel Demblaker would be Dr. Beverly Crusher, or we could match Jed's beard to Beverly Crusher. <laughs> Deanna Troy would probably be Jennifer Packard. Um, yeah, Nathan, you can choose who you want to be in this crew. <laughs> Jed... You guys might have a coin toss on who gets to be Worf. <laughs> but all the same, this is why I keep a small, a small um, Enterprise D model in my office. Because it's good to be on this ship with this crew. And 
Vicky Rasich is one of the tie-overs of original series characters that they continued to use throughout. It gives us that stability. But through it all, through different changes going all the way back to 1852, North Holland Reformed Church has remained North Holland Reformed Church. And the growing consensus in the vision was that the North Holland D, the fourth iteration, would be a sizable addition to the ship. Anyone else notice that we've added about 15,000 square feet? Yes, we've all noticed. And so have a fair few curious souls in our neighborhood because buildings make people curious. The what and the why. And the what of our new main entrance, the center of our building, the kitchen, bathrooms, and large multi-purpose room is looking good. People ask me, how's that building project in North Holland going? I tell them it's painfully close emphasis on pain. But regardless of timeline and the what, the why will always be beautiful to me. And the why will always be what I'm proud of, of why we did what we did, and why I truly believe that this is the right project for the right reasons, and in God's benevolent sovereignty, it happened at the right time. Because the why is hospitality, youth, and mission. It has been from the beginning. The why of hospitality is accessibility, both of wayfinding and ADA compliance. The why of youth is because our students should have a space that they can claim as their own. And we should have room for games and larger activities and fellowship gatherings. The why of mission is not only because we raise nearly $10,000 a year of mission support on various food sales, and all of those have to be prepped in a commercial kitchen. But the why of mission is deeper than just that. The why of mission is why do we invite people in to have a meal? That we want to be their space. That we want the space to be as abundant as the food is delicious. And we want no one to leave or turn back because they're not sure whether, the, whether where to go or because they can't easily access the part of the building that they need to get to. The why will manifest itself in funeral luncheons and wedding receptions, in playground equipment and stay-at-home parent gatherings here, in harvest feasts and pancake breakfasts, in pig-in-the-blanket and fair booth prep, in game nights and recreation nights, in concerts and music lessons and worship services, and whatever else comes our way. How do we sum all that up? The phrase that I use most readily to describe why we did what we did in endeavoring on this great project is this. Food for the hungry, fellowship for the lonely. And you could also switch that around to be fellowship for the hungry and food for the lonely, and it would not be a mistake to do so. Jesus told us to feed people. He told us to visit lonely people. And he said that whenever we do these things for any of the least of these, we do them for him. And whenever we do not do any of the least of these things, we do not do them for him. Jesus told us to do these things. And we're going to continue to do the things that we do well and try to do them better. And we'll find new things to do too. Because there are hungry people in our neighborhoods right here in Holland and Zealand. And they need food. 
And nationally, including West Michigan, there are people who are lonely and isolated who need fellowship and human connection. Psychologists and sociologists both have described loneliness as the epidemic of mental health in the United States today. Mother Teresa once described the greatest problem in the world, not poverty, but loneliness. Today, we have more methods of instantaneous communication than ever before, yet we are less connected and more isolated as individuals than ever before. Ironic, isn't it? That we're the most technologically advanced and socially inept cohort in human history. And did you catch in James 5 who is supposed to pray? Who is supposed to rejoice? It's that people who are doing well get to rejoice and have others rejoice with them. And that those who are struggling get to pray and have other people pray with them. And so we rejoice with those who rejoice and grieve with those who grieve here in this place. The difference in James's day is that even in times of persecution, people still were so dedicated to being connected that they prayed together. But in our modern society, a higher and higher percentage of people aren't connected at all to anyone, and that type of isolation causes pain. And we're not talking about introvert or extrovert. That simply measures how much social stimulation you find invigorating or exhausting. But we're talking about connection, conversation, laughing with someone and not at someone, sharing stories, but not story-topping, because that's obnoxious, relating to other people, with a listening ear for what they're going through in life right now and without ever saying, oh, I know just what that's like because that's a terrible lie of a phrase. My friends, we need to be together. And we all get to take part in that. And we all get to share that. We all participate in offering food for the hungry and fellowship for the lonely. James paints a picture of Elijah and is careful to remind us that Elijah was just a person, just a human being like us. And yet Elijah prayed, and it made a difference. There was high stakes, and there was a great outcome. But Elijah was just a person, like you and me. Which is a reminder, taking into consideration the confession that Pastor Audrey led us through, that we can make a difference too. You hear about mental health crises, shootings, abusive homes, and we wonder what difference any one of us can make. I think Satan tricks us into thinking that our little bit of good isn't good enough, so we try not to make a difference at all. It's a lie. We can make a difference by inviting people into what we have, by making sure to reach out, not just to the people who we always talk to, the people we know, but expanding beyond those circles as well to experience connection, to offer a seat to someone who might not have anyone else to sit by. Come, join us, are words that many people in our society need to hear, to know that they belong and are welcomed, to know that there's a place for them to come to. Those invitations to simply share food and fellowship, to play a board game or shoot some baskets, Join a dodgeball team. Learn to bake a pie from someone. These are all opportunities to share our life together and make a connection and chip away at the societal erosion of loneliness and isolation that is causing all kinds of problems. The connections that we make just might lead to what James described as bringing someone back who has wandered from the truth, leading a sinner to turn away from their sin and for all of us to continue to turn away from our habitual patterns of disobedience. 
People need connection. We can play video games online in our own homes with total strangers. We also can get together and play board games. That actually is making a slight comeback. And I will say, Caitlin and I hosted a game night once, and I have permission to say this, I'm still a little bit bitter that Kyle Neal and Allison Veldhier betrayed me at risk. <laughs> because we could have all won together, but you betrayed me, and you lost. And I'm very happy about that. Isn't it easy to notice, though, how bitterness can enter the human spirit? But I use the example of online games versus board games because there's something gained when we gather together, when we can see each other's faces. Stories are created that I will never forget. And the interaction is meaningful, and it is what we need. It's our time to share Jesus with people, to hear how people's lives are going, because not everyone's going to walk into your office one day and spill their soul to you. But things come up when we spend time with each other around food, around an activity, and we're enhancing our ability to do just that. I say all this as a reminder that this is what we're working towards, that once the project is complete, sometime this fall, that we get to shift gears from project oversight into ministry implementation, and I am so ready for that, and I think we all are. If we do the things that we said we would do if we had the space, if we do those things now that we have it, we will make a difference in our community. With God's help and prayerful direction, with steadfast devotion and faithfulness on our parts, we will make an impact for Christ's kingdom on our community, chipping away at the wrong that seems oft so strong and reminding ourselves and the world that God is the ruler yet. With the priorities of Christ's kingdom in mind and the fruit of the Spirit being lived out, if there is health and love in this place, we need to invite people into it so that they may also know the God who is the source of that love and strength. Friends, I've given that a lot of thought lately. Inviting people in to experience what we have. I've thought about it because I don't feel that I deserve the love and support, the trust and respect, the affirmation and encouragement that you all have unceasingly offered. I don't deserve you, North Holland, this fertile soil for ministry. Yet my mentor, Steve Vandermolen, would say precisely the reason God sends us to places that we don't deserve is because we can appreciate what is in front of us. And what I see in front of me is a congregation of Christ's followers who are beyond my deserving and are the type of people that any pastor would wish they got to serve. We're not perfect, but we're okay with that because we're together. I'd considered before if maybe your patience with me was because of all that was going on in the DeVries household. Two young kids, my father-in-law is dying of cancer, and I'm not even five years into ministry, and we are surging ahead on a multi-million dollar building project. But are those factors the things that make you gracious and supportive and patient with me? I don't think so. I think those conditions are considered in how you show your support to me, to Caitlin, to Ada and Ben. But they're just that, conditions, circumstances. And I don't think that the love in this place is based upon conditions 
Because God's love for us is not based on conditions or circumstances. Love that isn't based on conditions, of course, is called unconditional love. Unconditional love. A church that is galvanized for the mission and purpose of showing Christ's love to the world as the motivation and expression of our faith. Such a church is unstoppable for it is empowered not by human agenda or selfish ambition, but by the very love of God that called us to Christ and sent by the Holy Spirit. I am confident that this is a place where people experience that love because I've seen it secondhand and experienced it firsthand. Let's keep it up. My personal vision for ministry remains the same, that people know they're loved by Jesus and cared for by the church. So love one another as Christ has loved you. Care for each other in fitting ways that care. The care will be based on conditions and circumstances, but it is fueled by unconditional love. Love spreads. Love is contagious. It grows. Love learns and love does. And that also means that there are growing pains along the way. It means we'll come into contact with new neighbors who are different from us. It means that there will be new people here, and that can sometimes mess with our groove a little bit. But I use the analogy of interstate travel to understand that. Do you ever notice that everyone on the interstate highways, if they're going faster than you, they're a maniac, and if they're going slower than you, they're an idiot? I do. I notice that. And there's more idiots than maniacs, by the way. But that ratio is changing as I get older. But that experience of observing everyone else as one or the other is based on egocentric perspective, that we are what we are and everyone else is something else. However, to everyone else, you are either the maniac or the idiot. You are the something or someone else to everyone else egocentric perspective. Church is the same way. Often, just like interstate travel, we can feel that anyone who's been here longer than us is just so set in their ways and not open to change. And everyone who's been here less time than us, well, they just don't know what we're all about. They don't know how we do things here. Probably because we operate in culture based on unwritten rules that aren't written or spoken. We just kind of enmesh them. We will have to grow into and grow through some of those pains. And they do have pain. They do have change and loss. But my friends, never conflate a personality difference or a negative interaction with some sort of permanent or irreconcilable difference. Because if we do that and let it hold us back from making an impact, we will succeed in creating an amazing country club and fail altogether at being a missional church. The success of this place has been based on our senior saints, our older generation. Kudos to you for being some of the most pioneering people who welcome, embrace, and encourage innovation. People who have the most right to say, but we've been doing it this way for X number of decades, are the same ones who in different meetings have said, go with what the young people need because they're going to be here longer than us. That is Christ-like sacrificial humility, and I have witnessed it explicitly three times in the last five months. Thank you to our senior saints who have been here a long time and embrace the future of the church as we still continue to care about the present. 
You are some of my heroes. Don't let the fear or pain of growth shy us away from making the difference that God has called us to make. And don't settle too quickly for something being irreconcilable or impassable. Because we serve Jesus Christ, who is the reconciler of our sins. And if we're too quick to see things as irreconcilable, we probably have a diminished view of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Be on the team to make a difference. Be on the crew that makes an impact for Christ's kingdom here in our community. This takes its form in sharing time and talent, in service, and in finance. Truly, we've got some debt to work with now. Buildings are expensive, but they're worth it. And I'm confident that we will hit this thing hard. Come 2019, 2020, we'll be going into mortgage retirement. It's a pipe dream of mine to see the church debt-free before I leave. No guarantee on that. God calls in ways that we can't anticipate or predict. But I do know the statistics on building campaign contributions during lead pastor transitions, and they're not particularly good. I also know the effects of cynicism on capital campaigns, and I'm grateful that this didn't happen here. Because a common story throughout the U.S., documented, told over and over again, a common story is this. A church sets out to do a project, And the church contains people of greater wealth and means, average wealth and means, and below average wealth and means. Those of average or lesser capacity, we look at the big number and say, well, what difference would my dollars make anyway? I'll just let the rich people pay for it. This is not only cynical, it's also discouraging to people of greater means who are generous. Because now it's turned into their commitment for everyone else's benefit. And that's no fun. It creates bitterness and disenchantment with the project. And so the whole thing kind of flounders around, and then the debt lasts forever because everyone else is waiting for someone else to step up. It's that same lie again that Satan tells us that all the great tasks in the world are so big that you really can't make a difference, so why try? That's a common story throughout the U.S., And I'm grateful that isn't what happened here. Because I look at our financial analysis that our consultants gave us, and I'm reminded that we are a people who commit, who step up to challenges and engage them wholeheartedly and together. And we all do it. Nothing builds momentum for a cause like large-scale populist buy-in. Because the more people who commit, the bigger the total difference is made. And then, those of above-average means know that it's not all on them. People aren't waiting for them to do it for them. We're all in it together. This is invigorating for the whole church. Because there's no handouts, but it's a mutual hand up into an exciting new chapter for us together. Chuck Brower gave the report last week, but I just have to say again that our capital campaign consultants don't know what to do with our data, and they don't actually want to use it in their averages because we have excessively high participation. Even those who don't commit still participate. And that just doesn't happen anywhere. But it does happen here. Because North Holland Reformed Church is freaking awesome. (laughs) 
So let's get moved into that space. Let's not lose sight of our purpose and the love that we have for one another. Let's get ready in 2019, 2020 to hit our mortgage hard and get on the road to being debt-free. And let's be a place that is fueled by the unconditional love of Christ, where there is food for the hungry, fellowship for the lonely, a light in the darkness. We can be faithful because God is faithful. I love you, North Holland. Amen.